You're listening to a special edition of The Globalist, first broadcast on the 26th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist is brought to you in association with UBS. Hello from Midori House in London. Welcome to a very special edition of The Globalist here on Monocle 24 with me, Tom Edwards. Today, we're looking ahead to 2023. Somehow, we'll try to pack all the major issues into less than 30 minutes, from how the global community will deal with Russia to getting out of a cost-of-living crisis. Today, we preview some of the stories that will be shaping our world in the next 12 months. Plus, we will be looking ahead to the World Economic Forum in Davos and... It wouldn't be a preview if we didn't talk about the UK hosting Eurovision later. Join us as we look to the future. That's all coming up right now on The Globalist here on Monocle 24. You are listening to a special edition of The Globalist on Monocle 24 with me, Tom Edwards. Over the next half hour, I have a special panel of experts here to help me preview the year ahead. They are Rachel Cunliffe, Senior Associate Editor of The New Statesman and the journalist and broadcaster, Barbara Sarah, welcome to you both. I won't say welcome to 23 just yet. Um, Let's start, though, on a more personal basis. Do you have a personal resolution for the next 12 months? Barbara, I'll throw that to oh, you gosh. first of so, all. Do you know, I'm going to be quite smug because I'm actually <laughs> stuck to my resolution from, from January, which was randomly to take up ice skating, which I have stuck to. I know it's, it's and you know, I'm no longer, let's just say I'm in the second flush of youth. So falling on the ice now uh, is not like it was when I was 15. Uh, I just went last Christmas at one of the ice rinks around London, remembered that I loved it and actually have stuck with it. So I guess for 2023, I want to keep on doing it. I'm still rubbish, don't get me wrong, but at least uh, it's fun. Wow, I'm impressed. And we had some appropriate conditions in the build-up to Christmas here yeah, in, exactly. in London, didn't we? It got very, very icy. Maybe the luge or something next? Bob, <laughs> no, I no, I'll just stick to the, ice, stick skating. To the ice skating. Um, God, that's, that's completely wrong-footed me. Rachel, what about you? I don't have anything that impressive. I actually crowdsourced this on Twitter to see if anyone else had any good ideas of, of New Year's resolutions. And the best one I got was uh, try to procrastinate more, but maybe later. Oh, that's clever. <laughs> And I think I think I could stick to that one. So I think it's important to choose achievable goals. So that's what I'm going with. Very good stuff uh, to start with. Um, let's uh, look though to Ukraine. It's ten months on since Russia invaded. There have been sanctions and threats made by countries and governing bodies against Russia. But how far can they go? Will they continue? Will the world be able to get on uh, with what is? the largest country on the planet. Um, Rachel, I'll come to you first of all. How to deal with Russia in 2023? I do appreciate that's quite a big question to be thrown. <laughs> it's it's a huge question. And I think you have to start off with the understanding that no one knows. And the reason that we, we don't know is because there are no clear off-ramp scenarios, at least none that don't involve nuclear Armageddon, which we're all trying to avoid. The idea that maybe there could be peace talks, that maybe Putin and Zelensky could could sit down and come up to some some kind of deal uh, really just seems further away now almost than it has been at any point in the last year or or just as far. Uh, Russia refusing to negotiate uh, until the West, the US and and Ukraine recognise its annexation of four areas, uh, areas which it's 
not even ter- it's not even holding the territory at the moment. It's just it's just claimed ownership essentially, even though it's it's not even there anymore. Uh, and also, I, I I think making the condition um, that uh, Zelensky isn't in charge of of Ukraine for those talks to go ahead on the Ukrainian side. Obviously, Zelensky has said that he won't negotiate with Putin. It would have to be someone else. With, with all of those forces in mind, I think it's very difficult to see a way forward where you you do get some kind of resolution and peace talks. So I asked the New Statesman's international team, I said, what do you guys think? And the consensus was, what if it doesn't end? What if this is just sort of a long slog and the forever war and unfortunately we're having this conversation same time at the end of 2023 asking, will it end in 2024? Well, Barbara, I mean, there's the rub, I guess. And what is scary is quite a few of the people we speak to here at Monocle talk about an era defining or redefining moment, the nature of this conflict, the position of the two players and all of the other sort of proxies and stakeholders. Where do we look? Can we look back to previous um, highly complex, nuanced international uh, relationships or examples of great diplomacy that has achieved the unachievable to find inspiration? Or do you share some of those concerns? I absolutely share the same concerns. And uh, I mean, I quit in April, but for 16 years prior to that, I worked at Al Jazeera. And I think we should remember, you know, what was the big conflict the West was involved with up until a few months ago? Well, it was the so-called war on terror, whatever you want to make of it. And I think that Russia's invasion has reminded us all, as Europeans especially, but as NATO members as well, of what a threat Russia can be. I think, yes, there is the possibility of an ongoing war, because it doesn't look like either Russia or or Ukraine is going to back down. They both have uh, you know, things that they want before they come to peace talks, which are unachievable for the other side. But I suppose the question is that 2023 is probably the year when we have to think of possible solutions. I mean, how does this war end? Because this war, or at least Ukraine, is supporting by the West. And the other thing that we always, it always strikes me when I sort of follow the English language press, British especially, but American as well. And then some of the European, mainly Italian, but a little bit of French, Spanish as well. You know, we have to remember that there is a big split in Europe when it comes to supporting Ukraine. Now, no one is necessarily in Russia's camp, but a lot of Europe is divided in what they call the peace camp and the justice camp. So the justice camp wants, you know, justice for Ukraine and the peace camp is going, well, you know, yes, Russia was wrong to invade, but we can sustain it, blah, blah, blah. And even though European governments are on board and everyone's making the right noises, when it comes to the European populations, and and, and you just notice it, even just reading newspaper headlines without necessarily uh, looking at polling, you know, there is the risk of a split within Europe and and Ukraine war fatigue, which is exactly one of the things that, that Putin is aiming at. So I think this is the year when we have to start thinking, okay, how does this war end. And when I say we, I suppose I mean NATO countries. You know, perhaps Ukrainian membership to NATO could be one of the things that is up for discussion. Ukraine is not going to like it. A lot of people aren't going to like it. But it just depends how long we want to, again, I say we, the NATO countries uh, want to or can uh, keep on supporting Ukraine. But I don't think we should ever underestimate what a threat uh, Russia is, to not just to Europe, but to the concept of democracy. And indeed, does that threat uh, increase uh, with time as frustrations grow? Is it then more expedient, Rachel, almost to ask, rather than how do we sort of deal or speak to Russia, how do we try and ensure that Russia in some way cooperates with the global establishment? Maybe for 23, it's more about focusing on how the external cooperation works, whether that's between 
Brussels and Washington or Berlin and London and Paris or wherever we look in the world? Is it more important to look at a cohesive approach and ensuring a unanimity of approach from without rather than trying to worry about how we talk to Putin, who one imagines is going to become ever more desperate? Certainly, I, I think it is. I think it's also a priority to for all Western countries to kind of almost look domestically, look internally at how their economies work in the medium and long term with relations with Russia at the point that they've been. So we're going to talk a bit later about the cost of living crisis and all the sort of political and and economic consequences of that. But I think it's certainly the case that this war and the effect it had on uh, the domestic politics across Europe caught a lot of Western leaders by surprise. The spike in the cost of energy, the spike in the cost of food, all the supply chains, the increased risk to inflation, not saying that it's entirely caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but that was obviously a key factor. And I think Barbara is absolutely right to talk about Ukraine fatigue on the part of electorates in in Europe who are exhausted and worrying about getting through the winter and feeding their families and the national politicians trying to work out how do you fix these domestic issues when they have very clear overseas causes that you can't really do anything about. So I think if you're looking at strategically what should Western governments be doing given that they can't negotiate directly with Putin... Russia-proofing their economies and trying to look at, uh, in particular, energy security and ways to safeguard the economies so that we're not relying on what will Putin do, will he act reasonably or not, in order to, to get through some of those, those national issues. Well, we will indeed come on to the the, uh, the energy crisis, energy interdependency, etc. later. I just wonder, is there an opportunity here? We talked a little bit over the last kind of 18 months, two years about the return of US foreign policy with Biden. It seemed like a sort of grown up was back in the room. Is there potentially, despite the huge and complex nature of the challenge that the Ukraine conflict poses, an opportunity for certain global leaders to demonstrate a bit of traditional statecraft, a bit of classic yeah. diplomacy. I mean, that could be something to look out for perhaps in 23. Look, I don't claim to know the inner workings of Putin's mind, but I think if you looked at the West from the outside over the past few years, really 2016, you know, I hate to harp on about this, but as a European citizen in the UK, Brexit had kind of an impact on my life. And certainly Brexit had an impact on how Everyone else looked at the UK. And then, of course, you had the election of Donald Trump and everything that he did to NATO disunity, really. And so I think what Putin saw, and I think what a lot of people from around the world have seen, is a weakness within, whether we call it NATO or the West, whatever we call it, a weakness within the cohesive nature of all these uh, nations. Now, I know that this podcast is meant to look forward and not look backwards. <laughs> uh, but I think if we do look forward, you know, yes, we're talking about Ukraine, war fatigue and everything, but it'd probably be a good opportunity to remember what our values are, what we stand for, and that democracy is is one of the crucial ones. And, you know, again, we'll see who's who wins the US election. We don't know who's in the running yet. Um, uh, but, you know, those things are important. And I think we'd, we'd forgotten that, you know. Uh, well, I guess on that point, before we can talk about executing a statecraft, we need to have the personnel, right? Doesn't I'm not filled with a great deal of optimism about the calibre of uh, some of the public servants <laughs> here in the UK. But if you look to the US, it's still a very muddled uh, field of, of candidates. It still looks a bit like the GOP can't figure out what to do about um, Trump. Is that another thing to look for in 23? Maybe a return of 
bit of quality to the field in terms of the political uh, personnel who are available? Well, I think if there is a job vacancy, Emmanuel Macron is very much pitching for the role, certainly in the absence of leadership from the US and, and from the UK. I think he sees himself as this sort of global mediator between the West and, and, and Russia and, and even China. His his best friend, apparently, uh, he'd have you believe, is, is technocrat Rishi Sunak here in the UK, uh, a British Prime Minister who doesn't seem to have any views on foreign policy at all, having uh, come up through the Treasury and, and through the, the lens of economic and, and, and financial politics rather than than global ones. Uh, I, I think it's, it's probably going to be France and, uh, and an EU-led uh, front rather than sort of relying on uh, the, the former the, the US and the UK because, again, I think it's, it's, it's right to say that there has been that absence and that Putin took advantage of that. Mm. Um, just on that point, and I, I know we were not supposed to mention the B word Brexit, um, oh, but it, you, it does seem no, no, no. It does seem <laughs> it does seem relevant here, though. What what happens to the UK then in the next twelve months? Because it feels like to present exactly that kind of united front, we need to put our chips in with our European brothers and sisters. But that is politically complicated as a manoeuvre for for Sunak to, to to pull off. So what what do you think the UK should should do? We I need to be aligned. There with are Brussels. ways to have co- to have cooperation with the EU without being in the EU. I mean, even as a sort of as again as I said, as an EU citizen in the UK who wasn't keen on Brexit, I don't think we need another referendum or any kind of moves to rejoin the EU. But I do think that there are ways in which the UK can cooperate uh, with the EU, especially when it comes to issues of security. And I do think that even the most ardent Brexiteers who back in 2006 didn't want anything to do with the EU in any way, shape or form, I think now, six years later, are perhaps more open to... to co- I mean, it'd be crazy not to cooperate. I mean, no one's ever said you never cooperate with the EU. And I do think the UK is symbolic. It's always been that step between Europe and, and the US. You know, I suppose when it comes to mentality, it kind of relates more to the US than other European countries, but remains, of course, a European country. It's impacted by the energy crisis. Uh, When it comes to issues, you know, that are right or left wing, like the National Health Service, it still has more European roots than, say, the Americans that hate anything to do uh, with what they perceive to be nationalized health care. So, no, I think there absolutely has to be a I think the UK would be crazy not to. It just depends whether Rishi Sunak can control some of the members of his party who are very resistant even now to any kind of cooperation. Uh, They certainly are. Uh, We're looking ahead to 2023 here on this special edition of The Globalist. Uh, Hear more from Rachel and Barbara after this. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Welcome back to The Globalist with me, Tom Edwards, still with me, Rachel Cunliffe and Barbara Serra. Now, related to our previous discussion on Russia, in fact, in many countries around the world, the costs of everyday goods and services, certainly energy, are getting still more expensive. Rising costs are making life more difficult, whether that's to afford food, fuel or rent. Emerging from the pandemic into this cost of living crisis has been deadly for many people, for many businesses. But is it set to continue into and through 
2023. Um, Rachel, I like to throw you these enormous <laughs> and impossible to answer questions. Um, where are we headed? It does not look good for the UK, does it? Uh, I think the the cost of living crisis is a product of global factors that basically go all the way back to the, the financial crisis. That's certainly partly what has been driving the inflation and the war in Ukraine. Uh, all of that is true. However, it is also true that the United Kingdom is particularly exposed to some of these forces compared to other countries, particularly other countries in Europe, partly because uh, of how bad a lot of our infrastructure and a lot of our capabilities were at the start of it, sort of lack of investment uh, in the UK for the last 10 years in everything from roads to rail lines to skills infrastructure, NHS workers, public sector pay, but all of the issues, they are all connected and they all basically come down to that. And that is why I think you are seeing other countries in Europe facing the same challenges when it comes to energy, particularly European countries that are even more reliant on Russian gas than we are here in the UK. Fair, slightly better, or at least look like they're faring slightly better without this kind of managed decline feel that we have here in the UK. And unfortunately, I don't think it is fixable, at least not quickly. It's going to take a huge amount of cash and also, I think, a realignment of the political forces within the Conservative Party that have proved so chaotic and toxic for the last sort of five or six years, until we get those two things, I think the UK is going to find it particularly difficult to recover. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you both a little bit about who fares better, who fares uh, worse. I think that managed or mismanaged decline that we have here. Uh, the UK stands out head and shoulders as one of the, the biggest potential uh, losers. But what I guess is interesting, Barbara, and I wanted to tap into, I know you've had some, you've, you've written and been talking about this recently, is this sort of uh, sense that these challenges prompt an ever more almost sort of radicalised right-wing uh, agenda. We hear it from the, the right-wing of the Conservative Party. Obviously, we've seen this manifesting itself across yeah. other countries in the EU bloc. How scared should we be that the cost-of-living crisis presents yet another compelling front for nationalists and the, the, the sort of the far-right leaning? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I've done some studies and some work on, you know, the sort of rise of fascism and then the war period. And it's always when people are scared about the present that you tend to look back to the past and think, oh, no, but things were better when X. Now, and again, looking at the UK and, and, and the rest of Europe, the UK, because as you mentioned, Rachel, the UK is less ex less exposed, so should be doing better than it is, but it isn't. Um, and, and the rest of Europe is suffering as well. There was an interesting uh, poll by YouGov that actually had the UK and Italy with the highest levels of discontent with the way that their governments were handling the situation. And what I found interesting about that poll is that I think it was done around October when the UK had just, I think it was in the middle of the whole trust saga and Italy had just elected a new uh, very, well, I mean, right wing to say the least, a far right government. So listen, an economic crisis is always a time when people are going to feel more vulnerable. It's not just um, the economy in itself. It's the sense of inequality. It's the sense that it doesn't matter who you vote for because there are bigger powers at play. I mean, that's the 
the kind of thing that you hear a lot on social media or or in a lot of discussions. And so obviously it's a time uh, to be worried, especially when you have not only a cost of living crisis that's having a huge impact on everyone really across Europe, but as we were talking about earlier, a, a kind of shortage of inspirational political figures and a total absence. You know, we were talking about countries. Well, Germany's kind of gone missing in action. And Germany is the key country in the EU, always has been. It was always well balanced by France and the UK. That balance is going to have to change. But Germany has always been in many ways the engine. And we don't have it now. So, you know, is it a worry? I mean, absolutely. I can talk about it um, later as well, because I know we'll be talking about the global uh, economy as well. But it's always a sign. And we are seeing it across Europe in the most unlikely countries. Again, I don't want to look back. But when you look at Sweden electing a far right, uh, uh, you know, party or, you know, giving it a sort of considerable power in the new uh, government. Italy, the first far-right party, you know, at the heart of EU institutions. Marine Le Pen did a lot better than expected. She didn't win the presidentials. Um, And and even that... um, you know, in Germany a couple of weeks ago when they sort of exposed that coup. Now, the coup may have seemed ridiculous in a way, this prince that was going to be put in charge of the um, of a new Reich, but it kind of shows you that we shouldn't underestimate, underestimate uh, these forces because at the heart of them is always a lot of discontent. And, and we also come off the back of a pandemic. A lot of people had in Europe, you know, the whole vaccine issue could be very controversial. So, yeah, you know, economy always um, a red flag. And now, Rich, I sense from your introductory remarks that you may not have a great deal to add, given what I'm about to ask you. But is there any prospect at all, certainly if we look at Europe, of any uh, politician or any bloc or any unlikely alliance surprising on the upside in in 23? Do you think that because of the nature of the challenge, um, how scary it is for so many people, and because of these, the, the fear factor, actually, that surrounds it politically, economically, and from just in the day to day, that it may prompt something surprising on the upside? Is there any hope of that, whatever? I'm going to try and be optimistic here. Do your best. Um, best. We're an optimistic bunch here. Uh, I actually think... The EU has been more impressive, certainly, than its critics uh, would have expected in standing up to to Putin and Russia, which we were talking about earlier, and also just to return briefly to Brexit on the other side, uh, the UK leaving the EU has led to a change in in the mentality of of that bloc and kind of stepping up. And maybe there is an extent to which I agree that Germany has gone missing in action, but uh, having a more balanced European Union with the the Nordics uh, and and with other countries, the, 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 the Eastern European ones, becoming more prominent maybe that is good for the bloc survival and that is a good balancing force whether it's balancing russia or china or or the us uh, whether or not it's good for the uk is is another matter uh, on populism and sort of the, the the economy the slightly positive thing i would say is that it looks like it's going to be a really really hard winter but so much of this is energy related that some of that pressure will alleviate as the weather gets warmer in in spring and you would hope that if we can get through this winter the uk other european countries there might be an opportunity to pause take a breath go okay that was brutal what can we do now to make sure we're prepared for the the next winter coming up and i really do think there is motivation at least to do that now in a way that there hasn't been for some time. 
Well, in just a few short weeks, uh, many of the key decision makers globally will be gathering uh, in Davos for World Economic Forum. And if we do look at the the global picture, I guess a great deal depends on the direction of travel in the US. And Barbara, one thing I find, again, a, a potential crumb of comfort maybe is that the US does seem to be a little more robust economically at a slightly more advanced point in the cycle, certainly than anyone in Europe and definitely than the UK. Could the US um, offer a bit of a slipstream for the rest of the world economically in the next 12 months? I know they have <laughs> a number of attendant problems of their own, but could there be some a silver lining there also? Uh, listen, I mean, no one wants a dysfunctional US. I don't think that that would be in anyone's benefit. Uh, again, from my 16 years at Al Jazeera, I can tell you that in many parts of the developing world, Davos is not particularly well seen. And if we look at what we've seen, the inequality, you know, we've been talking about inequality within our states, so within the UK or either other European states. But when you look globally, you know, COVID was a brilliant example of it, of vaccine inequality. Even now, when it comes to the food chain and the impact of the war in Ukraine, you know, there's parts of the world that are suffering when it comes uh, to to food distribution and and, and food arriving there. So, uh, listen, I I think a lot of things need to be re-examined. I'll put my hands up. I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to bore you with uh, my assumptions or my thoughts on Davos. (laughs) But I do think that there is a, a discontent. And I think in Increasingly, we talked about NATO and Western, you know, identity. And and I think when it comes to Russia, absolutely, that's necessary. But I do think we are becoming an increasingly interconnected world. Um, When it comes to the war against Russia, for example, or, you know, Ukraine and Russia, you know, other parts of the developing world haven't necessarily jumped to our either assistance or even necessarily emotional uh, support either. So I think something like Davos, the more inclusive it is and the more it considers, like they did at COP or at least tried to do at the COP uh, in Egypt, um, then the more successful successful it will be. I think the global economy has to be more interconnected now than it ever has been to succeed. Uh, just very briefly before, I want to ask you both about Eurovision. On Davos, where, where do you stand on that, Rachel? Is it sort of meaningless talking shop? Is the real big question actually, what does the uh, next US president you know, do we do we start to get a sense of who what, who that is in terms of personnel through through twenty three? What what's the key factor in terms of uh, big picture economically for twenty three? Well, I thought I'd just tell you what the the tagline for Davos this year is: it's cooperation in a fragmented world, which just <laughs> under honest, also understatement. Uh, I'm always a bit skeptical about big events like the World Economic Forum. I think that some good does come out of them, but it does seem essentially an opportunity for politicians to to show off and have lots of photographs taken with with, with famous actors uh, and, and things. I think actually the, the most significant thing about it is that 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 headline uh, and the understanding finally after COVID that cooperation is vital, even if it's with countries that you abhor for their behaviour in, in other areas, namely China. You've got to get talking. You've got to have the lines of communication open because if you don't, very very disastrous things can happen for the global economy. Oh, well, before we say farewell to Rachel Cunliffe and Barbara Sarah, I want to ask them both about something which is actually related to our first talking point of Ukraine. Um, although we, we, we approach the subject with a rare, some rare levity, because I want to ask you about uh, Eurovision. Uh, the UK runners-up hosting the contest in 23, of course, because uh, Ukraine quite understandably has other things to be concerned about. 
Where do we stand on this, Barbara? I mean, <laughs> do we have you, to stand somewhere? Well, look, it's it's an interesting, it's always a fascinating soft power moment. That's oh, our kind absolutely. of lens through which we look from here at, at Monocle. Um, but in a sense, this is it's another example of cooperation. Could this be an unlikely uh, display of exactly that cooperation and a bit of joy what in twenty three? Will be interesting to see is how, and I don't know if any of the details have been announced yet, but I don't think so. Is how Ukrainian is it going to be? Mm. Because technically. Ukraine won, right? <laughs> and it's here in the UK because we came second. And I say we, obviously, I was cheering for Italy. But anyway, and it's a little you, bit of the... Won last year. I know, I know, you're right. So we couldn't win twice. So I was going... <laughs> it's the same as the football. You've got to share you're right, yeah, we paid the price for that. Um, and so I'd love to know, for example, are the presenters going to be a Brit and a Ukrainian? You know, how much of a Ukrainian flavour is it going to have? Because I looked at the little logo and you have, you know, they have the little Eurovision heart and then there's a flag in the middle. I don't know whether I was just looking at something random tweet but it looked like the the little flag inside the heart was Ukrainian and so what I would like to see and I think it would be a beautiful message to send out you know from the UK and just Eurovision in general it'd be lovely to see a balance because it's not just going to be a normal British Eurovision is it it's going to be you know the one that should have been in Ukraine and and we're hosting here so that's what I would like to but no everyone always loves Eurovision and you get to make fun of all your friends from other countries you know, so you know that's always good speak for yourself Laura I'm always very uh, very generous uh, with everybody's entrance um, Rachel what do you are you a Eurovision a file I'm, I'm or a, a diehard fan no oh, okay. we, we 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 watch it every year we play all the drinking games we try and get a spirit from as many different European countries as we can we cheer particularly loudly for Australia um because the what, great why European <laughs> uh, exactly. No, I, I think, again, Barbara is, is got it spot on. We have to remember that this isn't our Eurovision. We are hosting it for Ukraine. And actually, I think that's a really wonderful, beautiful thing. Obviously, I would love for the UK to win and for us to be hosting it sort of in our own right. But I do think that we are kind of confident enough at least when it comes to Eurovision particularly as a nation to go we are doing this for you and I really do hope that they bring in Ukrainian voices Ukrainian presenters I also hope that maybe some of the the, the love for the fact that we're hosting it this year for them uh, plays out in the scores that other countries give the, the British entry because we came so close last year Yeah, <laughs> we actually of, had a good song a plaintive appeal I'm sure that won't, it won't fall on deaf ears I'm sure you see of great this is for the Brits, but if Graham Norton present, if he's going to be as cynical as he always is about all the other countries, oh, so. or whether he can't be if he's the host, you see. He's, he's cynical about the UK as well. There's a lot of cynicism to go around. It's a wonderful thing. We have enough cynicism to go around here in the UK through force of circumstance. Um, we have to leave it there. Uh, thank you very much both, in particular for finding some optimistic notes. Challenging <laughs> after the year that was in 22. Huge thanks uh, to our Look Ahead Roundtable panellists, Rachel Cunliffe and Barbara Serra. Uh, stay tuned to Monocle 24 for plenty more from them in the new year. Today's programme was produced by Tom Webb and Laura Kramer. Our studio manager was Steph Chungu. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening. Goodbye and have a very, very happy 2023.